Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 104 of the Headspace and Tommy podcast. On today's episode, I have a conversation with veteran and mental health professional Eric Strom about how clinicians with lived experience can support veterans in accessing mental health care. Having that lived experience is important. For some, they're going to, you know, look for that counselor who is a veteran, right, to, to have that, that extra 1%. For a lot of folks, you know, if you have that other, you know, 98, 99%, they can be okay with that. And yeah, definitely important to pay attention to that, that cultural competency piece. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, you know, I always say that I'm enthusiastic and that my guest is the greatest guest in the world. And, um, and, and if everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. But I'm really excited whenever I have fellow mental health professionals who were veterans who became mental health professionals after the service. And, and that's definitely uh, my guest here today, Eric Strom. Uh, Eric spent some time in the Marine Corps, which we'll get into, uh, and then uh, got out and and started doing some things in clinical mental health and private practice. So before we get into that, I'd like to uh, welcome Eric to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I'm uh, excited um, to talk, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, excited to talk to another mental health professional who is a veteran, who's been involved in podcasts and communicating. And so um, I, I've really uh, enjoyed seeing what uh, what you were doing. I, I listened to an episode um, that you had on the Trauma Therapist podcast with Guy McPherson. Uh, but before we get into what you're doing now, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience um, sort of your background, your service, and then how you got to where you're at. Sure. So I joined the Marine Corps in uh, 1999, right after high school. Uh, did that and ended up in 
Buford, South Carolina as part of um, VMFA 312, so uh, Marine Fighter Tax Watching 312, was there for the duration of my time in the Marine Corps, did a couple of uh, deployments with them, one uh, pre-9-11, one post-9-11, um, was uh, aviation flight equipment for them, so it took care of pilots' flight gear. It was a, it was a good good job. Uh, the joke amongst uh, myself and some of my um, Marines that were in there is, you know, we, we had it good being, uh, we were in the air conditioning when they were out on the flight line, so, uh, you know, everybody wanted to be friends with us so that was a <laughs> a good deal um did that uh, for five years left active duty in 2004 spent a couple of years working in the uh, civilian world um, doing different jobs and eventually i was turned on to the idea of uh, clinical social work i uh, really knew that i wanted to help veterans in in some way and at that point in time, I thought, you know, doing individual therapy with them, helping, you know, a lot of these uh, veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan would be the way I'd want to do that. So I started in uh, 2006 uh, and was had already had some credits under my belt, so was able to graduate from my undergrad program in 2008. Uh, did an advanced uh, practice master's program and graduated in 2009 with my master's in social work. Uh, so and that that started my journey down down the road of clinical mental health. So and and that's uh, I always find it fascinating how. Um, Veterans in, in combat, veterans, those with deployments under their belt, um, this isn't a typical career field that we would go into. This is atypical. And you said that you were turned on to the idea of clinical social work. Uh, how did that happen and made you think that this is what you wanted to do as opposed to the other stuff you were doing after the military? Yeah, so so the, the story goes that at that time, my... Uh, uh, mother-in-law at that time uh, was in a clinical social work program and I uh, talked to her about that and you know looked more into it and you know sounded something interesting that I like to do and was able to talk to one of the professors at the university we went to uh, University of St. Thomas in in St. Paul and uh, one of my who he later became my one of my mentors there he was a uh, clinical social worker in Vietnam. And so uh, just having conversations with him and talking about wanting to help veterans and, and what that would look like, uh, you know, that I was able to, you know, pretty easily make that decision that that was something that I wanted wanted to do. And, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, veterans, you know, like us and, you know, veterans in general, it's, it's kind of a something where people look at it like, you know, what do you do now? And, and especially having come out of the Marine Corps and, you know, the idea that people have of, you know, what a Marine is and what they do. And, you know, that was a, a pretty uh, atypical thing for, for people to come across. And, you know, even, even now, sometimes 
people are like, what? You, you know, you spent this time in the Marine Corps and you became a social worker. How does that work? But, you know, I think it just speaks to the, the you know, broad, uh, just overall diversity of, of the people that enter the military. And, you know, when we come out, just looking at the things that we want to do. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And, and I always like hearing those origin stories, right? You know, how, because it is so unique, um, how somebody got into this. In a very similar way, I had, uh, she was the lead social worker here at our local vet center in Colorado Springs, uh, retired Air Force major who, like your mentor, you know, had gone in the military and then um, had gone into the career field. And so it's sort of like the mentorship piece and, and being able to see that, hey, there is a place for me here. And sort of being able to um, uh, consider something different. So then, uh, once you got mm-hmm. your, your degree and you started practicing, so what are you doing now with um, with uh, clinical mental health? So now, uh, you know, I've, I've gone through a journey of you know several different um, positions over the course of my career, and right now I work at uh, Mayo Clinic Health Systems in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, been been there for uh, not quite a year, uh, and in the way that uh, life often happens, I'll actually be leaving there before too long to uh, head back to Minnesota, which is where I'm from. I'm scheduled for deployment next fall, and I'm going to be working with the uh, the brigade that I'm deploying with to get them kind of spun up in regards to mental health and behavioral health policies and things like that. So, and that's something I, I think, so you're uh, currently drilling as a member of the Minnesota National Guard and you're, are you going back to Minnesota? Yep, that's right. So, so I currently uh, drill as a, in, a member of the Minnesota Army National Guard as a behavioral health officer. Uh, just uh, wrapped up my uh, last drill for now anyways with a brigade support battalion that I've been with for a few years. Uh, moving over to uh, an aviation brigade, uh, who I'll be uh, deploying with this fall. So I've been doing that, uh, said since since about um, 2010. Although in those initial years, I didn't have my independent uh, license, and so anyone familiar with the military or not familiar with how the military works, you need to have your independent license before you're credentialed as a provider in the uh, active duty or uh, National Guard or reserves. So, and, and it's it's interesting to me to see how um, how behavioral health is is conducted on the um, on the reserve and National Guard side. Um, in in several of my deployments, you know, especially in in the global war on terror, um, it's all mixed. You you have active duty units serving alongside uh, National Guard units. Um, I often tell a story when I was in Afghanistan, our, our engineer company, um, was uh, a group of guys out of, or, or some reservists out of South Indiana. And it's a different unit. It's a different, it's a, it's a unique feel. Like the two guys that always came with us, they were cousins, right? You know, their moms were sisters and they were like related to a quarter of the unit. Um, and, and so behavioral health, when it comes to guard and reserve, making that switch from civilian to, you know, active military and making that switch back. It's, it's pretty unique. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are definitely some of the things, some of the challenges that we face as you talk about deployment and National Guard units versus the active duty component. You know, when we're in country, having that ongoing support, you know, is is really beneficial. However, you know, when uh, redeployment happens, you get home as an active duty unit that that support stays. And with those National Guard units, you know, you you all kind of disperse uh, to your hometown, wherever that might be. And, you know, in Minnesota, we have, of course, the, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul metro area, which is has a, you know, a lot of different resources. But you start to get out to uh, greater Minnesota and, you know, those resources really start to dwindle. And so we don't have, you know, that ongoing support in the same way. So we've try to do a lot within the organization to, you know, support these soldiers, uh, both at drill and, and at home, you know, doing our best to partner with local organizations or, you know, find out who the local providers are, you know, using things like military one source. We have some uh, military family life consultants, some uh, psychological health coordinators, folks like that, that uh, soldiers can talk to for a limited period of time and really just trying to, to help build mental health and, and, you know, build the resilience of soldiers both after deployments and, and leading up to them as well. Yeah, that's a, that's always a challenge. And I think that not a lot of people consider, um, yes, we serve along with national guard or reserves and everybody thinks, uh, you know, weekend warriors one week and a month and two weeks out of the year, which it hasn't been like that for a very long time, if, if it may be getting back to that. Um, but, but you bring up a great point is that when I came back from, from my deployments, you know, if, if I had a soldier that needed something, we had on post behavioral health, everything was contained. Um, you know, and as you said, everybody kind of stayed together. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm certain the, the latest numbers are 20, they're calling it 20 veteran suicides a day, but within that 20, a number the VA just came out this past year, something like four or six out of that 20 include active duty and drilling guards and reserves. Um, and so that's a huge gap that, I mean, heck, you could probably almost drive a, a bus through um, because the guard and reserve who are currently on status, they don't have access to the VA. Um, they don't have always uh, proximity to, um, you know, military installations. Um, and, and that just goes back to the challenge you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, as you pointed out within those, you know, the 20 a day, there are a, a significant number of, you know, active duty and guard members that are committing suicide. And unfortunately, in Minnesota, we've had our share of those as well. And, you know, it really is a, a challenge when we look back at these individuals and, you know, trying to assess what what could we have done differently? You know, were there resources that we missed? Were there things that we could have provided? And, you know, sometimes it, it is, you know, that maybe some, you know, somebody could have reached out and, and done different, you know, um, you know, or not sometimes, you know, you know, one of the one of the good things that that are, is coming out, you know, more recently, we, we've transitioned from and anybody in the the National Guard or you know I think active duty as well will will know we've transitioned from the uh, you know the old resilience program that was that was out there you know the kind of death by PowerPoint 
come sit in a room once a quarter and we'll we'll hammer these out to uh, more of a, a style of being able to have squad leaders, those first line leaders really connect with their soldiers. Um, you know, some of our full-time staff uh, uh, in, in the Minnesota Guard and within the behavioral health part of that uh, has put together a great uh, book to kind of guide those conversations and, and, you know, whether that's around relationships, money, you know, emotions in general, just, you know, really bringing those people together to kind of give back to, you know, the way that it used to be, right, where, you know, and probably more like what, you know, you and I experienced on active duty where, you know, your team, you know, your shop, your squad, whatever it is, you know, you are a, a close-knit group. And we don't always have that in the National Guard because, you know, we have, you know, one weekend, you know, more often than not these days, it's, you know, three days, uh, often a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, to uh, to get to talk to one another. And but really in that time, you are, you know, hammering out tasks that need to be done. You're doing your training and you might not have a lot of that time to get to know your soldiers and outside of that drill weekend of course everyone has civilian jobs they're busy with their families with whatever other uh, commitments they got going on and and so we've gotten away from really having that connection you know having that small unit cohesiveness and so this new program that we're um, you know that's been put out is is really aiming to do that to bring teams, squads, you know, platoons and, and companies, you know, back to a, a more cohesive unit and really offer that time to get to know one another, know what's going on with your soldiers, you know, recognize if this person is having struggles because, you know, they're having relationship, you know, relationship issues or financial issues or, you know, whatever it might be. So really looking at, you know, identifying these, these difficulties earlier on. See, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, I, uh, when I retired at the end of 2014, um, I had been a master resilience trainer. And so I definitely tried not to do that death by PowerPoint, but then, you know, it's, it's in with everybody else's. And if it's not a priority from the command, obviously, then it's, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be implemented. Um, but the point that you make about the first line leaders getting involved, I've always told people that that's extremely critical. Um, you know, as well as I do, both um, in, in mobilization and demob, and then in, in your own active duty deployments. Um, and so this is as much for the listeners as uh, when we're sent somewhere, we go through initial readiness processing, you know, uh, and then we come back and we have to go through the, the post deployment assessments, right? And we go through and get all poked and prodded and um, and here at Fort Carson, it's just this long hallway that's like, I don't know, 200, 300 meters long. And at the end of the day, you're <laughs> sitting there next to your buddies and just waiting to talk to the provider. And, uh, and I have this idea that the first sergeant of commanders, you know, walking up and down saying, make sure you tell everything to the, pro you know, make sure you say everything to your provider. Make sure you tell them what's going on. I don't want no blah, 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 right? But that PFC is sitting next to the NCO that he just spent 12 months in combat with, 
And the NCO is saying, you better not say anything, dude, because if you say something, you're going to get a purple folder, you're going to get a sticker, you're going to have to go see something. Yeah. So we're going to listen to the people that we are closest to, to our right and left. And I've always said that if we don't get that message to the bottom line in the squad base, the motor pool, and the team rooms, then the commander can stand up all day and it's not going to be effective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think you definitely hit on it there as far as the, you know, that PFC, you know, listening to that, that NCO, you know, hearing like, hey, man, you, you know, you better just tell them you're good to go so we can get out of here. And absolutely, I've heard that from, you know, a lot of different people when they've come back from deployment, they're like, man, we're not going to say anything. We, we know that if we say something, that's just going to prolong this process. Like we are done. We want to get out of here. You know, I'm not going to say anything. And so I think, yeah, really working to, you know, break down that stigma and really get the word out there that, Hey, you know, just, it's better to say something now than to suffer in silence. You know, let's, you know, do what we can to, to help you on the front end. And, you know, really working to build that that culture of, yeah, you might be here another, you know, hour or something, but that's going to be a lot better than you going home and, you know, suffering in silence or, you know, having family issues or whatever it might be, you know, it, it you know, and it might be something that comes out farther down the line. I think we both know that right away when you come back from deployment, things might seem great, but those you know, 60, 90, 180 days out, you know, things start to show up. And so really even, you know, building, you know, the culture around that too, that look, you know, if things are, are getting tough farther out that service members can come forward and, and talk to their first line leader about that as well. And, and that's really part of the, the idea behind, you know, this program that's been been rolled out is you know having those relationships being able to to talk to those people that that you trust you know and it sounds amazing and then something else that you had brought up earlier that ties into this um is and something that i hadn't considered um i spent i don't know i, I joined the army reserves in 92 i spent like a nine months in the reserves before i realized that i really wanted to go active duty so i'm familiar obviously with the it may be the disconnectedness. I, I may I know one person still from the time that I was in the reserves, and I wasn't in very long. Uh, but the sense of isolation that um, you know you're only with each other you know a short period of time every month, and if you haven't had a recent deployment, uh, we know you know as well as I do that one of the risk factors for um, suicide attempts or completed suicide is a sense of social isolation. You know, along with the sense of burdensomeness, and then the uh, joiners interpersonal theory of, of having the lethal means to execute uh, or to um, to carry out the, the suicide attempt. But that isolation, maybe when you're on active duty, that's not really there. Um, and, and even maybe if you're in the, the, the veteran space, you might have connection if you make it. But if you're in that no man's land of guard and reserve, that isolation is really part of the, the unit structure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and certainly there are, you know, some units that, that do it better than others, uh, as would be the case, you know, active duty or otherwise that, you know, are able to get their soldiers connected to one another. And a lot of that has to do with the, you know, geographic location, you know, of your soldiers and, and how connected they feel. I mean, and certainly, you know, today's 
National Guard is not what it was when my dad was in, where he, you know, served in the same organization for the majority of the time he was in, in the, you know, in the National Guard. And he did it for, you know, 20 years. Uh, nowadays for, you know, promotion, for just moving forward with your career, you know, you're going to be moving around. So, you know, I have um, soldiers that I've worked with, you know, in my unit who drive, you know, three, four hours uh, to get to, to their, to their drill site, you know, so, and, and that, if they're the only one coming from that community, while we have a lot more opportunity to connect through, you know, text, you know, phone calls, email, you know, Skype, things like that, uh, it still is, is a, a challenge for people. So yeah, that definitely, definitely that social isolation, you know, can be, can really be a struggle for, for folks. And, you know, we're always looking at that from the behavioral health standpoint. I know commanders look at that, uh, you know, first line leaders, just how we can work to improve that, you know, whether that's through, you know, FRG events, through, you know, uh, holiday parties, family events, you know, whatever it might be, just to bring everybody together and feel uh, more cohesive. Yeah, and, and I really appreciate this. It's giving me a different perspective and even reminded me of some of my, my own clients. I've got some uh, some clients who served in the reserves or guard, and as I've mentioned before, and and you, you nodded that, uh, you know, it's not just one week in a month and two weeks out of the year, but um, one of my guys said he was a deployment chaser. Like he would jump from unit to unit and he would just chase deployments. And so he was like for, I was in the, the guard for like eight or nine years, but I was always on orders or active duty or coming back or going. And so you, you have some of these, these guys and gals that are chasing a deployment. Maybe they got back four or five months ago. Um, and, and in active duty army, quote unquote, you should, um, have caught that and not been allowed. But was that common before? Is that still common now for you? Yeah. You know, that's, that's not something I can say that I've seen a lot of as far as, you know, folks transferring from one unit to another to kind of chase those, those deployments. Um, yeah, I mean, from personal experience, that's not something that I've seen. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> doubt that it's out there. I mean, there are certainly those people who, you know, uh, you know, look for that opportunity or, you know, are looking for those, uh, you know, active duty orders for the, you know, for those, uh, full-time national guard orders to, uh, you know, cause, cause it's a good benefit for a lot of folks. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's not something I can say that I've, I've seen. Yeah. And it's, I just found it interesting. And even, you know, we always talk about, uh, you know, waiving our dwell time, that time in between our, um, our deployments. Um, I'm guilty of it myself. I, raised my hand and I was back in Afghanistan nine, nine months after I left uh, for, for reasons, right? You know, for whatever career reasons, mm -hmm. and keep the family here at Carson and all this other stuff. And, um, and while it was a really good idea at the time, or it made a lot of sense at the time, at the time uh, that kind of churn is, is really going to kind of tear things down if we don't pay attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those going, you know, from one right into another, just looking at, you know, the toll it can take, uh, you know, on, on the individual as far as whether it be, you know, physical and or, 
you know, mentally what that can do and certainly what it can do to, to families and, you, you know, you, you being on active duty, uh, you know, listening to some of the, the you know, previous episodes, you know, talked about your family and, and being at Fort Carson and having that support of, of that active duty component. And certainly if you look at, you know, the, the National Guard and how that looks much the, the same as, you know, there's that social isolation for the service member that can be even more true for the families. You know, I know there's been you know a, a push to create more of that uh, family readiness group and just try and, you know, bring people together. We certainly have, you know, those uh, offices within various uh locations throughout the state of Minnesota and, you know, who really work to connect the families, provide, you know, services, uh, both when, when service members are deployed and, and at home, uh, you know, but again, not, not quite the same setup as, uh, you know, as you would find on, on, uh, an active duty post, but yeah, definitely people will have their, their reasons for doing those things and it takes a toll. And so that's what you're doing with the uh, Army National Guard. Are you working with veterans um, on a consistent basis in your your non-military clinical work? So in my my non-military uh, clinical work, I I see a few veterans, uh, not as many as as what I would like, and that's just you know due to the uh, uh, the the nature of how things go with being at you know, at a, at a bigger, uh, hospital like I am, uh, certainly on the, on the military side, you know, you get to do a lot of work with, you know, with current service members and talking with them, helping to, you know, find out what their struggles are and, and ways to help them. So I'm curious to hear even with your veteran clients, um, and your non-military clinical work or even that, or your, your, um, actively drilling service members. Um, does your military background um, play a role in it at all? Is it a benefit to it? I mean, is, I definitely see it is in mine, but I also uh, like to hear from other veterans who become mental health professionals, how they employ their lived experience in conjunction with their clinical experience. Yeah, definitely. The experience that I've had from the time in the Marine Corps, you know, my time in, in the Army National Guard definitely has been a benefit to my clinical work and, you know, in working with veterans. I mean, as you've experienced for sure, it's, you know, when you don't, when they don't have to explain to you, you know, what, you know, going down range is, what being a country is, you know, what an MRAP is, whatever it might be, right? I mean, it just creates this, this common language that, expedites the process and allows for a level of, you know, feeling comfortable, you know, with that person and, and just having that openness, you know, I've talked to veterans that I've worked with and, you know, they maybe have, you know, tried, uh, you know, therapy in the past and just didn't find it to be a good fit because they didn't want to have to, you know, explain it to the therapist or, you know, they started to tell their story and the therapist, you know, just had this kind of look of awe of like, I can't believe, you know, what you're telling me kind of a thing. And so definitely having that 
that military experience and, you know, knowing where people are coming from has been, you know, a huge benefit to, you know, to the folks that I've worked with and not only uh, military, but also, you know, folks like EMT, fire, police, folks like that as well, who, you know, have a similar experience, you know, where it's at a similar kind of culture uh, to, to the military and, and really find that benefit in, in somebody who, who gets it, even though it's not, you know, a direct correlation, you know, they, they feel like, okay, well, you, you get it more than, than the guy down the hall or the gal down the hall who doesn't have any experience in doing this. And, you know, of course, nothing against our, you know, our civilian counterparts who don't have that experience. It's just, they might pair well with somebody who, you know, doesn't have the same, same experience. Oh, you definitely bring up a great point about the first responders, uh, you know, fire, police, and EMS, um, having that service-oriented running towards the flames, running towards danger as opposed to running against, you know, so there is a, a level of, of ethos and, and things like that. And not only that, there a lot of veterans will cross over into that for a number of different reasons, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. and I think every 11 Bravo is told they could be a security guard or a cop. And that's what happened is what my father did in, in Vietnam. Uh, and and uh, he left Vietnam and became a, a city cop in St. Louis in the 70s. So we don't know where the trauma of one ended and, and the other began, right? I mean, it's a it's a critical kind of um, job. Um, and one of the challenges, we're having a national conversation about veteran mental health, but we're not really having a national conversation around first responder mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That is a, a population, you know, that it sounds like we've, you know, both had exposure to in, in our clinical work and, you know, uh, police, fire, EMT. And I, you know, I work with, uh, you know, a number of people who are, you know, either police officers or firefighters. My my uh, first sergeant from the, the unit I just left uh, is on the, you know, Minneapolis uh fire department. I have a, you know, uh, uh, XO, you know, uh, from the company I just left, she's in the, you know, the Minneapolis police department. I mean, so, it, you know, it does cross the lines, right. And, and having that national conversation, uh, around these individuals is, is critically important and something that certainly, uh, I don't think is happening to, to the level that it, it should be. No, I, I certainly agree. I was as you were talking about that. Actually, one of the um, uh, one of the squad leaders that was in Iran platoons in Afghanistan, um, he just passed the uh, so he's state patrol and like he's two buildings down from me is where their their barracks is right and and uh, and and so it is a big crossover. Uh, and then you were talking about again families before right and the same. You know, I, I heard somebody describe it once as um, you know a, a first responder's wife. It's like 360 mini deployments where, you know, when I walked out the door, perhaps you walked out the door, you know, our families were like, okay, there's a possibility he may not come back in a year, but it's almost first responder families feel that every day. Um, and so there's, there's mm-hmm. a need to support that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a, that's a great way to look at, you know, 360 mini deployments because every day is, you know, is really a challenge for those individuals. You don't know what you're going to come up against, you know, it might be a, a calm day with, you know, nothing happening or, you know, it, it might be quite the opposite with, uh, you know, terrible things happening. So that's you know, a, a great way to look at it. And, and definitely those experiences take a toll on, 
you know, on the, the family unit as a whole and having that support and, and understanding for those individuals is uh, definitely something that would be a, a benefit you know, for, for us to be having that conversation. Yeah, no, certainly. You know, this is uh, this has been great, man. Uh, before we before we, you know, take off here, any last thoughts, anything you think that uh, listeners might want to want to hear from a uh, former Marine who's uh, now a mental health professional? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that I would say, and, and it's something that, you know, I, I talk about uh, with, you know, civilian providers is, you know, if, if you are a civilian provider and you're, you know, wanting to get involved uh, to, you know, help veterans, help military, you know, definitely, you know, reach out to uh, somebody that you know. If you don't know anybody, feel free to uh, reach out to me. But really, you know, looking at developing some of that cultural competency, right? We talk about that a lot in, in the helping professions, having that cultural competency. And the military is no different. You know, we have our own kind of cultural context. And so, you know, that certainly is important to, to have that understanding of what that looks like. Uh, and then, you know, and, and I've heard you talk about this as well and some of your other guests, just to those veterans out there who, you know, might be struggling, whether active duty, National Guard, Reserve, whatever it might be, you know, certainly reach out, right? I mean, you know, no one's going to blackball your career for, you know, talking to a mental health professional. Um, I know that stigma has been out there and unfortunately still exists to some degree, but, you know, there are many great uh, Marines, uh, sailors, soldiers, airmen who, you know, have gone through struggles, reached out, gotten that assistance and continued on to have great careers. So, uh, you know, and if you're if you're a veteran, you know, there's nothing nothing weak about reaching out and, and getting that help. It's you know, it, it's a pretty courageous step to take that that first step into asking for help and and, you know, moving forward in a better direction with your life. Yeah, those are two really great points. Um, and, and as you said, ones that I I try to make off and first when it comes to the cultural competence piece. Um, you know, again, you and I came from, um, you know, we're native speakers of acronym, I like to say, right? You know, we, we grew up in that yeah. or, or we experienced that. Um, and we do have colleagues that are very, very skilled who never serve, but that's because they take the time to understand and learn a, a, a way that I like to say it is uh, Jonathan Shea, uh, author of uh, Achilles in Vietnam. He said in that book that um, he would never be someone who knows he, he would never say 100% that I know what you're going through he said because I can't he said I can get 99% of the way there I can get you know I can understand everything I can learn what it means to be in country and all those phrases but he said there's still that 1% that I cannot and will never be able to close that gap um, and for some veterans that's a huge gap that 1% uh, for others not so much um, you and I however came from that lived experience side and develop clinical skills. And so, um, you know, I'm way behind some of my colleagues, obviously, and I've only been practicing for five years. Um, so I don't have the long clinical experience, uh, but having the lived experience uh, is critical. 
Uh, and it's up to us to figure that out, right? We can't just say, I want to go, I want to help veterans because I love veterans and I want to help them. We can do more damage than good if we don't pay attention mm-hmm. to it. Uh, and that's really what, what I hope some of what the podcast does, that if somebody really wants to learn about veteran issues, that they're able to listen to this. And, and so I really appreciate that couple uh, cultural competence piece. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, having that, like, you know, like we talked about, is such a such a critical part, you know, and, and having that lived experience is important. For some, they're going to, you know, look for that counselor, you know, who is a veteran, right, to, to have that, that extra 1%. But for a lot of folks, you know, if you have that other, you know, 98, 99%, they can be okay with that. And, you know, so just, yeah, definitely important to pay attention to that, that cultural competency piece. Right. You know, and so, again, as I often say, veterans don't need a, a real big reason to avoid treatment. And so if, if I can say, you know, hey, well, I only need a, you know, 11 Bravo who was deployed to Bakuba between these, you know, and so if I put all these obstacles in my way and say I need that, then, then there's some other stuff going on. Uh, and then that goes to your other mm-hmm. point of, of veterans, you know, just reaching out and, um, and, and, you know, getting the help, getting the therapy with the big T, not that, you know, everybody's like, Oh, you know, going to the range is my therapy. Yeah, that's cool. But that's therapy with a little T. I mean, this is actually going to somebody with, with clinical experience that can help you unpack some of this stuff. Um, and, and that's why I like to have guests like you on the show to say that you, you talked earlier about sort of the stereotype of what a Marine does and what people think a Marine hat, you know, um, is like, um, but the stereotype for therapists are either, you know, you're an old guy with a German accent and you have a couch and goatee and glasses, or you're a female and you burn incense and you sing Kumbaya and all that. I mean, so these are the stereotypes that people have against therapists, <laughs> especially veterans. Um, and the more of, of you and I and people like us that are talking about what really is like, um, that kind of breaks down the stigma against therapy for veterans. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, yeah, it's, yeah, those, those stereotypes definitely exist, right. For, you know, for therapists and, and, you know, veterans will, will look at that and be like, wow, I'm not going to go talk to either of those people. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. Having people like you and I, and, you know, and, and other, you know, you know, veterans who, who have gone down this journey of, you know, becoming a, a therapist and, and helping out, you know, fellow veterans is, is great. And definitely, you know, there's, there's more of us, uh, needed in, in my humble opinion. No, I, I am right there online with you. So if somebody, you know, say they're in Minnesota, um, in the upper Midwest area, they want to, um, connect with you, maybe, you know, work with you or get connected. Like you said, some other clinicians might want to reach out and talk to you about cultural competence. How can people find you? Yeah. So, uh, certainly can, uh, send me an email. Uh, so my, uh, uh email is Eric Strom, E R I C S T R O M dot L I C S W at gmail.com. Um, I'm also, uh, folks wanted to, uh, give me a call. That's, uh, certainly okay as well. And, uh, so I can give you my, my phone number for the, you know, put on the show notes page or 
you know, whatever it is. Uh, and yeah, I mean, those are probably the two best ways to, to get a hold of me. I certainly have, uh, you know, all the, the social media stuff, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and all that. But, uh, yeah, probably email or, uh, or phone call is, is going to be the, the best way to, to reach me. Yeah, that's, that's great. Like I said, I will make sure, or, or like you said, I'll make sure to get that information in the show notes. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, be careful on your, on your upcoming deployment, keep your head down and all that. Right. You know, and, uh, and, and thanks for sharing your story with us. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for having me on Dwayne. It's been great. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk with you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. One of the things I enjoy about this show is learning about different perspectives and how we... One of the things I enjoy about this show is learning about different perspectives and how we, as mental health professionals, can impact the conversation around veteran mental health. There is so much involved with it that I, as an active duty service member, often forget the unique challenges that come with reserve or guard duty. And rarely is it one week in a month or two weeks out of the year the way it was in the old days. Another thing that I enjoy is supporting other mental health professionals and getting their message out. Since Eric and I recorded this episode, he started his own podcast, Conversations from the Couch, talking about mental and physical wellness. Make sure to check it out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a link in the show notes, which can be found at VeteranMentalHealth.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST104. While you're there, consider leaving an honest rating or review. It helps other people find us. We're always looking for guests. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guests to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and are not meant to be considered professional advice. While Eric and I are both therapists, we're not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up. You know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.